that image of Christian people, spiritual people, being very loving is prominent even today, right? Or at least that's the hope. Have you ever sat down and talked with someone who says, you know, Jesus was all about love. If the church could just be all about love, our problems would be solved. Have you ever heard anything like that? We have so much judgment in the church. Why can't we just love one another? Communities often love to see churches serve. You know, so we go out and we help out in a soup kitchen or we go out and we help at like with the backpack day that we do. And there's this general idea that as long as Christians are pouring out love, we like them. The world loves the church whenever the church kind of acts like the ultimate nice guys, right? Always smiling, never offending, just constantly pouring out love. But there's this strange thing where people will often say, we like the love that you show. We like the way that you serve. We like the emphasis that you put on love and faithfulness and loyalty. But we'd really wish you'd stop talking about why you do that. Like, we love that you show love. But if you could just stop talking about why it is you want to show the love. Have you ever run into that? Like, you know, a boss invites you in to, to his office or her office and says, it's great that you're a Christian. It's great that you're a hard worker. I'm really glad that, you know, you're, you're a good person. But you got to take down the sign that you've got on the side of your cubicle. Right? This, is, this is for a story from, like, my office environment. We like who you are, but you got to shut up about the Jesus stuff. The love that Christians have, we know, springs from the truth that we know in Christ. But there's pressure from all around us to divorce the two, right? To take the love that we show and the love that we express and to kind of pull that apart from the truth that we believe that creates it. As I studied this passage and as I thought forward into what we're going to be talking about next month, um, it just really hit me the incredible amount of pressure that Christians feel whenever we start talking about truth a lot. Our message of love is welcome in society. Our message about the truth that motivates that love is not welcome. And so we come to this book written by John um, to the church, to a particular church that he was afraid for. And he teaches clearly that love and truth go together. That you don't find them apart from one another. So that if we really love people, if we really have love, we're going to care about the truth. The truth will be important. And so with that in mind, with those thoughts in mind, let's look into the text. And so we'll start again in verse 7. John has just come out of his, his, uh, his call to love other believers, to walk in love, to let the truth reign in you so that your, your hands show grace and mercy and goodness. And he transitions directly into this. 
the very next verse. He says, walk in love, verse 7. Why? For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And so in John's mind, he has memories of the, the, the missionary force of the church going out into the world. He's an elderly man at the time that he writes this letter. And he himself personally has traveled from town to town to preach the gospel. And the other apostles have traveled from town to town to preach the gospel. He's been in many uh, folks' homes. He's experienced the hospitality of many churches. He's, he's traveled the circuit, so to say, to preach the gospel. And he's seen churches pop up and grow and start to become wonderful forces of like healing and truth and goodness where they are. But there's another missionary force that has been going out. So right alongside the Christians going from town to town preaching the truth, preaching freedom in Christ, preaching uh, forgiveness of sins, calling people to repentance, right alongside them have gone a false missionary force. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. That word deceivers is important because it stands right over and against the word that John has been using over and over again earlier in his letter, right? The truth. The truth. Walk in the truth. Know the truth. And yet there were teachers traveling around that told lies and wanted people to walk in lies. John says that they don't confess Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. They denied the very humanity of Christ, and in doing so, they denied Christ himself. And so they walked around, they had a message to teach, but it was a message that taught a Jesus that didn't actually exist. From what John tells us, um, we have a pretty good idea of who he's talking about. In the first century, there were groups of uh, kind of these sects or cults that would pop up around the world that were known as Gnostics. How many of you have heard that term, Gnostics? I just kind of want to get a feel for the room. So quite a few of you have. Um, basically, the Gnostics were a group of religious teachers who taught that there was a spiritual world and there was a physical world and that the two not only were separate, but they were at war with one another right? So the spiritual and the fleshly could never touch. They could never meet. And what ultimately would happen is someday the spiritual world would win out over the physical fleshly world and all would be only spiritual forever. Does that make sense? And so there were Gnostics among the Christians there were Gnostics among the imperial cults. There were Gnostics among the, Egyptian, uh, the Egyptians. There were Gnostics everywhere that had that same basic philosophy. And whenever Christianity began to spread, Gnostic teachers connected their teachings to the message of Christianity. They liked some of what Christianity taught, but this whole idea that Jesus Christ 
like that God, who is spirit, would become a man, that he would put on flesh as a part of his rescue of the world, they just couldn't accept that at all. Do you get, do you get why they couldn't? Because the flesh was all only evil. And so the idea that God, who is spirit, would put on flesh was like speaking blasphemy in their minds. And so they liked some Christian ideas, but they rejected the idea that God had ever put on flesh and become a man. And so some of them would say, well, he just looked like a man, but he was really a spirit, right? Just spirit. And so these people traveled around preaching a false gospel. This flesh-spirit antagonism um, often was practiced in a couple of different ways. There were Gnostics who um, practiced extreme asceticism. Um, asceticism is basically a practice to where you hate the flesh so much that you beat it. You know, you, you, you cut yourself or you whip yourself or you hurt yourself and you fast for a long time the type of, they would do actual bodily harm to themselves as a part of their um, religious practice, right? But there were other Gnostics who said, well, the flesh doesn't really matter because it's going to be destroyed. So instead of beating their flesh, they would just give in to whatever they liked. They would say, because I know the truth, because my soul understands the truth, then I can just do whatever I want, eat what I want, drink what I want, have sex with whoever I want, I'll just do whatever my body feels good because my body's going to be destroyed anyway and it doesn't matter. And so you had uh, people walking around saying that they were Christians but were either teaching an, a, an extreme form of like asceticism or were teaching do whatever you want. It doesn't matter anyway. They claimed to have a deeper and fuller truth, right? So they would show up in town, and they would say, you've heard about this Jesus guy. Let me give you even more information. Let me show you a deeper truth. They preached a false gospel. The Gnostics believed that they were saved by understanding that they were saved by a knowledge of a secret truth. Not really by Jesus. That's why they were free to deny him coming in the flesh. Now, the idea that Jesus became a man, that he took on all of our weaknesses, that he took on all of our, 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 our foibles and and. It's central to the idea that he, that of God's like gospel. That God, who is transcendent, came down, became one of us, lived a perfect life, and he really died a death so that our sins, the sins of our flesh, could be put on him and we can become forgiven. Like, the gospel, the picture of God's rescue doesn't work unless God really does become a man. And the hope that Jesus preached is not that flesh would be done away with, but one day it would be fully redeemed, that we would have new bodies, perfect bodies that weren't corrupted by sin, that weren't driven by selfishness. 
Jesus, the person, the truth with a capital T, saves. Not some secret truth with a small t. And so the Gnostics that John was preaching against here thought they were saved by a proposition. But when we believe the gospel, we're accepting a person, not just a small t truth. And so John looks at their teaching, he looks at what they're saying, and he says they're liars. And even worse, he says that they're antichrist. So antichrist is a term that's like full of uh, pitfalls and stuff. We all have heard the term antichrist at one time. Generally, it's like an, ang- an angry dude um, who thinks it's like the president, right? <laughs> like that's generally whenever, if you're just in public conversation and someone uses the word antichrist, it's probably like the last president or the current president or whoever the next one's going to be, right? Or maybe it's their boss, right, because they really don't like their boss. Um, whenever we get, you know, starting in December, when, or starting in November, whenever we get into the book of Second Thessalonians, we're actually going to talk about the term Antichrist more, so I don't want to go too deep into it today. Um, but the church at the time recognized there would be an individual who would be known as the Antichrist. And John, in his teachings, tried to get people to understand that like, there are actually many Antichrists. That it's not just one person, but the spirit of what it is to be anti-gospel, to be anti-Jesus, was alive and well in many deceivers who had gone out into the world. All you need is love, right? How does that stand up in a world where deceivers have gone out? Love can't be divorced from truth. If we really love people, if we care about their souls and their destiny, then we'll care about the truth. Let's read verse 8. It says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And so the warning comes out that there are many deceivers that are traveling around. There are people that will show up in your town that say they speak for God, but they don't. And you have to watch yourselves, because if you let these people in to your church, if you let them sow their false gospels in among the people who have already received the real gospel, you might lose everything you've worked for. John has a genuine fear as he looks at the church of what could happen if it's not on its guard against false doctrine. Specifically, false doctrine that denies Jesus. Like, not just a little mistake, right? But a big one. He's seen communities start to be healed. He's seen lives become changed by the gospel. He's seeing churches that are vibrant and strong and making a real difference for God where they are. But he's also probably seen churches that have died because of this type of stuff. And so the healing that was there, the service that was there, the love that was there, the beacon of light 
that was there in that city because of a church's work, he'd probably seen those start to be stuffed out by these heresies. So the question can come up, what does it look like when a church dies? What does it look like whenever a church loses everything that it's worked for? You have a remnant of true Christians, people who really do love Jesus, probably in a city, who have experienced community and love and have seen great things start to happen among their people. And then slowly folks start to peel off. Eventually there's no one left but a few. And even they are scattered. It happens today. It happens then. And John's genuinely afraid for them. Not that true Christians would lose their salvation, but that true churches would be destroyed, that local churches would fall apart, and that those who are in the midst of seeking God would lose the example of hope that they have in that church. Let's read verse 9. This line of thought is continued. John says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And so there's an acknowledgement here that the church is made up of people in different places. Do you see that? So if you go to any local church, you have people that are like on fire for God, right? And then you have people that are like being drug along by their parents who would rather not be there, right? Or by a spouse. And then you have everything in between. Everything in between. So people who are not Christians yet, but are maybe questioning, who are seeking, right? They're not quite being drug along, but they're not quite where they need to be yet. And then you have people who have become Christians, but they're baby Christians. They're brand new, and they don't know up from down yet. They're still figuring things out. And then you have people that are farther along, but maybe they're struggling, right? They're, they're still young. They, they know a little bit more than they used to, but now like the, Satan's really battling them because they know enough to know what they ought not do anymore. And there's this whole fleshly struggle that goes on. And then there are people who have won battles in their midlife, but now they're facing new battles in their old age, like diff- a different set. And then you have godly saints that are, you know, Take me home any day, right? There's a whole spectrum in the church. And John acknowledges that it's a mix of people. And so he says, in the church, those who decide to go on ahead and not abide in Christ, they're ones who were never true to begin with. They They don't have God. They don't have God. That was the claim that the heretics in this particular situation were were making. Come on ahead. Become more advanced, right? And 
John basically says those claiming to be more advanced don't know God at all. But whoever abides in his teaching, it says at the end of verse 9, whoever abides in the teaching, in truth and love, has both the Father and the Son. The introduction of new doctrine, like new theology, is incredibly dangerous to the church. Um, So why do Christians fight with one another over doctrine? Because some new doctrine can be deadly, right? It's incredibly dangerous to introduce new doctrine to the church. John is calling on Christians to abide in the teaching that they already have and to ignore those who would come in and add. John's not the only apostle who taught this. We also see it from the lips of Paul in his letter to the Galatian church. Um, Up on the screen should come Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. I'm going to read this. This is Paul, who's uh, (laughs) a much more easily angered apostle than John. His language a little bit more strong than John's is. Here's what he says about a similar group that's been bothering the Galatians. He says this, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. Some of your older English translations, let him be damned, right? Like that's what Paul is saying here. If someone comes to you with a different gospel, may he burn for eternity. Like that's, that's what he's saying here. Um, it's that important. If someone brings to you a different Jesus, if someone presents to you a different gospel, they will lead people to hell. And so Paul says, I wish they'd already go ahead themselves so that they'd drag fewer with them. Even if it's an angel. Paul says, if I come back to you with a different gospel, may I be damned. If an angel comes to you with a different gospel in all his shining glory... May he be damned. Paul was trying to drill in to that church in Galatia that the gospel is settled. That the faith that we believe, that who Christ was, had been established. There was nothing to add. We can go deeper into the gospel that's there We can study it, and we can learn from it, and we can apply it to our lives, and we can walk with God over time and understand the gospel more fully, right, as as we're sanctified, but it's still the same gospel we believe when we started. Those who cling to Jesus are the ones who are truly advancing. Let's move on. Verses 10 and 11 here in 2 John. He says this, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the, the true teaching about Jesus, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets you 
or forever greets him, rather, takes part in his wicked works. Heresy spreads, false doctrine, false gospels spread when we refuse to teach the truth. But it also spreads whenever we refuse to refute error. If we see what's wrong, if we see something that's a false gospel, and we refuse to like stand up and be like, you know, that's, that's not right, it will spread. If we're just the nice guys, if you try to keep a low profile, if me and Rich, as your pastors, just want people to like us, and so they come into the church and they're preaching weirdness, and a false gospel, and we're like, well, but we need more people, right? If we do that, it could kill the church. It's mean to confront people. It's deadly to everybody who's not sick already, if we don't. I point out again that John is dealing with a a denial of the gospel, like a really bad heresy, like something that that is is anti-Christ. We have disagreements within the church about certain Bible passages, right? Even like Rich and I, sometimes we'll open a verse together and be like in two different places about what it maybe exactly means or how we should exactly apply it. But the gospel, (laughs) like we're on the same page, right? So this isn't to say that we, we beat up everybody who doesn't believe every single little bitty thing that we believe, but the gospel is central and has to be protected. And so that radical Christian hospitality, to bring that back around to the beginning, the Christians were known for being some of the nicest people around, for inviting strangers into their home. Uh, there were Roman officials who complained that the Christians were making their own pagan priests look bad. Because they didn't just serve their own poor, they served the poor of other, of other religions. And so Christians practice radical hospitality, right? But John teaches that it stops here. That if you, if you have someone in your house that's a false teacher, if you support them in any way, if you join with them in any way, you're taking part in their wicked works. You've become a part. And so he looks out to the nicest people in the world and he says, shut your door. Say no. If they're still standing in the village square and it's cold outside, they don't get to come into your house. It's like inviting like a, an actual poisonous snake to sleep in the bed of your children. Kindness that supports the enemy is not kindness, it's foolishness. Love that supports the destruction of other people is not love. Hear this verse out of Jude. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all 
delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude's talking kind of about the same people, right? Contend for the faith. You may say this verse is like the others you've read, Tony. I read it because I'm trying to, I'm trying to get a point into us. Right? Jude says, contend for your faith. Know what you believe and contend for it. Argue for it. Make your life show that you really believe it. He calls it a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This interesting interplay where he says certain people have crept in who were long ago designated for destruction. You get the sense that their false teaching is ancient and rotten, right? And Jude is saying our faith, once for all handed down, which to us now is ancient but not rotten, it's fresh every day. That what we have handed down from the apostles is enough. That we don't need new doctrine. That if we live in it, the gospel that was powerful yesterday will be powerful today and tomorrow and the day after. That as old as our faith gets, it's evergreen. It never withers. Resist, contend, be willing to fight for good doctrine, and do so in love. You can't divorce love and the truth. The last two verses from the book of John are actually probably more helpful than they may seem on first glance into this topic. Because though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. These two verses is really just kind of an exit to the, to the letter. He's just saying goodbye, right, in one sense. Um, ch- you, church, do this. The Christians in our church say hi, and we're out. But that verse 12 in the middle, I think, has an important word of warning to us today as we exist. John wrote a short letter that was potent and called out false doctrine, right? And then he says, I have much to write you, right? I could go on and on and on, but I want to do it. I want to talk to you face to face. We are to contend for the faith. We are to value the truth. We're to fight for it. But sometimes, hear me on this, friends, sometimes these subjects are best talked about face-to-face, right? Contend for your faith, but maybe Facebook not the best place always to do it, right? 
If you have a brother or sister in the church that's starting to go astray and you pounce them with a public message, you might drive them away more than you point them to Christ. There were probably a thousand more things John could have said. But he said, I want to talk to you face to face. Maybe a word of wisdom there. Maybe we should take his example. Um, Speak the truth, surely, publicly, with as few words as possible. Because sometimes saying more can be dangerous. And seeking to speak face to face. So that's the book of 2 John. And out of this second portion, again, we find that if we really love people, if we really love them, then we will care that they know the truth. And the truth being the real Jesus, the real teaching of who he is. We'll care if we love people, really. We want them to actually know the gospel. The real gospel. Not one that's fake or modified or been tweaked or adapted. Though the gospel speaks to many peoples in many places and many times, it's the same. It's the same gospel. And so how do we know error? Like, how do we do this? How do we resist? How do we know who not to invite into our homes? How do we know whenever Rich and I are evaluating people who come into church that are like, well, I have this spiritual idea. Like, how do we know what to say? This is where the application comes in. We'll say this and then we'll, we'll finish up. Know the gospel really, really well. There are a thousand heresies that take a thousand different forms. There are a million teachers that would love to have you read their book and send them money and know their secret truth. There are thousands of denominations. Some, uh, some deny the gospel. They really do. How do we know what's what? When we get together with other churches to serve our community and participate them, how do we know which ones even though we have some differences, we can walk right alongside. And which ones, we just can't. Know the gospel really, really well. Like, know the gospel. Like, study your Bible. Read in it. Dig in it. Whenever the word's preached, either from me or Rich or someone else on a Sunday, like, listen and soak it in until you know it perfectly. There's the old illustration of how do they train people to detect counterfeit bills, right? They don't train them by showing a thousand different counterfeit bills. They train them by getting them to really, really study the real thing. And that's a good illustration. Um, If you want to be able to know what's the real gospel and what's a false gospel, you have to study the gospel closely. Study your Bible. Soak in the word when it's preached. Because whenever Jesus is familiar, whenever the real Jesus is familiar to you, false gospels, false pictures of Christ will pop up from the background. Like you'll be able to see him immediately. And so as we prepare um, to move into October and to talk about the Protestant Reformation, I acknowledge that we're about to talk about one of the biggest like arguments in church history, in a sense. Does that make sense? And so there were, people died 
in the Protestant Reformation. Men fought battles in the Protestant Reformation. It was a messy time, and the central truths of the gospel were at stake. That's why people were willing to put their lives on the line. So as we go into talking about the, you know, the five solas, you know, the things that we recognize, um, what we're really talking about is a time in church history where godly men opened their Bible and looked at what the church was teaching them and said, what happened? Some, some deceivers snuck in. And, and what happened? Why are we selling salvation to people? You know, it was one of, one of Luther's, why, literally, why are we actually selling with a contract and an exchange of coin salvation to people? Um, as we get into this, we're going to say lots of stuff. We're going to jump all over the scriptures. We're going to read lots of verses and basically say, why are we who we are doctrinally? Why do we believe in the gospel the way that we frame it? Why, why, and why do we hold to it so tightly? And you may hear things, you're like, I don't know about that. And what I want to encourage you is, is to know the gospel well. And that means as we preach, like as we dig into the scripture and, and study kind of what happened, what Christians fought for in the Protestant Reformation, I'm asking you to know what you believe and why you believe it. You don't just take my word for it, but dig in and really know the gospel. Truth matters. Worshiping the real God matters. The arguments that we sometimes have matter. And if we really love each other, if we really love people and we want to see them one to Christ and changed and transformed then we'll be willing to put in the effort to know the truth and to teach the truth and to defend the truth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you.